Before we begin, please refer to the disclaimers in the link on the podcast notes and note that none of the information provided during this update constitutes investment advice or a recommendation, solicitation, or offer by Galaxy Digital or its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital. I'm joined today by Christine Kim from Galaxy Research. Hey, Christine. What's up, Alex? I'm also joined by Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Digital Trading to talk markets. Hey, Bim. Hey, how's it going? Thank you for having me on. As always, yes. And I'm also joined by Stefan Gosselin, uh, co-founder of Flashbots, uh, who we will talk to at length. Hey, Stefan. Hello, hello. Great to have you here. Before we dive into it with Stefan uh, on Flashbots and MEV, uh, let's talk to you, Bimnet. Tell us what's going on in markets. I saw dollar strength was getting pretty out of hand. Absolutely. Um, risk assets uh, coming off, uh, you know, across the board. Um, you know, ETH and Bitcoin obviously down as part of that as well. W- what does it look like from your seat today? Um, it's pretty simple. You know, what goes up, you know, must come down. Uh, you had a, a pretty aggressive rally in, in most risk assets um, over the past month, uh, basically up until Friday, um, where, you know, you know, NASDAQ, S&P, um, you know, a bunch of Ethereum, Bitcoin, et cetera, had all been been trading very well for, for you know, basically a, a month and change. And so what you had happen um, on Friday and over the weekend was just a, a, a correction in the trend. Um, there are a couple technical things that I think are, are worth noting. Uh, one, um, you know, the S&P uh, sort of lagged crypto. Crypto started to roll before um, you know, U.S. equities did. And that's largely a function of sort of options positioning um, in, in U.S. equities. There was a lot of, 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 of options that, that were expiring on, on Friday. Um, so there's a lot of localized gamma that, that gets hedged. So there, there wasn't going to be that much vol in equities. And so, um, you know, when crypto started rolling over, you know, I think that was a good sort of signal that, that, that equities were, were also, you know, a little bit vulnerable. Um, and so you had a, you know, a lot of long positioning, you know, that, that, that was unwound in, in crypto and in equities. And then the other thing of note um, is that, you know, fixed income has been selling off, you know, fairly aggressively, um, not just, you know, domestically in the U.S., but you've seen major repricing of, of, of bonds in, in the U.K., in, um, in, in the ECB, in the Eurozone, um, and also, you know, like Australia, New Zealand, et cetera. Um, just because of you know sort of the the, the energy crisis that 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 we're having uh, in, in Europe and, and the impacts on on inflation, um, so you had you know bond selling off um, you know pretty aggressively um, and sort of a huge rally and you know you, you had a little bit of a of a, of a correction in the trend um, at high level you know the, the the biggest thing that I'm most focused on you know in terms of you know market catalysts on a go forward basis is, is Jackson Hole and, and that's this Friday. Um, and you'll get commentary from Powell um, at, at 9 a.m. On, on, on Friday. And I think you, you probably had a decent amount of market participants that wanted to uh, sort of de-risk going into that, that event. Um, so I would say, you know, those, those are the largest drivers of, of, of markets. What do you think on like, uh, I don't know, just broadly ETH-BTC ratio, Bitcoin dominance as it currently yeah. stands, you know, intra-crypto stuff? Um, I'm on team, uh, team ETH, team Christine. Um, I think ETH-BTC... Uh, trades uh, incredibly well. Um, not only when when you know when, when ETH is is going up, but when ETH is is going down as well. Um, I think ETH BTC um, has you know traded a, a, in a pretty resilient matter, uh, manner. Sorry. 
um, and that you know there's an actual narrative to it. There's an actual catalyst to it. And again, you have you know the the divergence we've talked about recently, where you have the ETH community, you know, constantly working on on improving you know the the code base and and, and the structure of, of of the protocol versus you know Bitcoin. There's really nothing going on. And you know, personally, I always view Bitcoin as as sort of a, a scorecard on on monetary credibility. And more and more, central banks are looking more credible by by the day. I mean, the fixed income markets are expecting you know historic. 75 basis point hikes, you know, the banks that were at zero to go to, you know, positive one, positive 2% interest rates, you know, central bankers that are uh, choosing a much more aggressive monetary stance, even though they are forecasting recession. You know, I'll give you one example. You know, the Bank of England, um, you know, during the last BOE meeting, uh, acknowledged that the, England was likely to be in a recession for, for the next five quarters. And yet they're still going to hike rates. So it's a central bank that that's telling you they're concerned about inflation and they're going to do everything they can to, to address it. And when all of the, the sort of developed economies, you know, besides the BOJ are taking that stance, I would say monetary policy is, is gaining credibility. Um, and so, you know, I don't think that the monetary credibility story is, is, is helping Bitcoin. Uh, and at the same time, the, the, the technological merits of ETH are, are just in your face all the time. And so even though activity is low, you know, there's a strong narrative. The tech is great. Um, and there's a fundamental supply-demand catalyst that's happening imminently. So I, I think I think you're going to be talking about flipping sooner rather than later. Um, you know, and, and you just high level. I mean, you, you, one asset's going to generate you yield by passively holding it. And people are going to be incentivized to, to stake it. Um, it, 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 you know, and I also, I think the dynamic of, of, of Bitcoin miners has changed dramatically, right? I think more and more, um, a lot of Bitcoin miners can't just, you know, buy and hold Bitcoin on, on their balance sheet because, you know, they can raise at super high, you know, equity valuations or, or, you know, get loan facilities at, at super favorable terms. You know, I think, you know, credit conditions for, for Bitcoin miners have tightened a lot. And so, you know, you, you are seeing a healthy amount of, you know, Bitcoin miner selling. And, and that activity alone is, is enough to sort of keep, you know, Bitcoin capped. Um, and now, I mean, you know, who cares about ETH miners? <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, uh, you know, I think, I think the contrast is, is just so dramatic. And, uh, you know, I think what our head of trading, you know, put, put it best, like, you know, he joined crypto because of Bitcoin and because of all of the monetary printing that was going on. But he's staying because of, you know, sort of the, the genuine technological merits um, that, that ETH and, and sort of, you know, DeFi provide. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you, Bimnet. Um, let's do a couple quick stories. I mean, these are all a little bit related mostly, um, but I think the most interesting thing just happened about an hour ago, right? We're, we're recording this on Wednesday, August 24th. Um, Tether announced that they were not going to freeze any of the stablecoin uh, tokens of theirs that were inside the Tornado Cash smart contract addresses that were sanctioned by OFAC. Uh, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, right, part of the U.S. Treasury Department. I don't know, Christine, what's your initial take on this? I mean, it seems like the bifurcation of the stablecoin landscape, this fiat-backed stablecoin landscape might be upon us. Um, I, I have to admit that, you know, not taking rash measures without um, – credibly knowing and and being sure that this is exactly what law enforcement requires us to do makes sense. And I think maybe the overreaction of other stablecoin providers is something that should be scrutinized more.
Yeah, we'll have to see. I mean, uh, you know, I'm not sure with the labyrinthine maze of legal entities whether Tether is actually a U.S. entity. If they're not, they may not actually be even required to uh, follow OFAC sanctions, right? Those apply specifically to U.S. individuals and entities. So I'm not really sure, but I, you know, I, I think we'll just sort of have to wait and see. But if it is the beginning of a world where you have sort of legal stable coins in the U.S. and then illegal or non-compliant offshore stable coins, that's going to start to get very interesting. Yeah, I, I think you're right. That kind of bifurcation would be um, a, definitely a, a, a big change in the way that DeFi moves and it would impact a lot of existing DeFi infrastructure on Ethereum. But I'm not totally clear that that bifurcation is inevitable. I do think that Tether coming out with this kind of language um, doesn't make Tether a non-compliant stablecoin. Like they are, they have in the past blacklisted addresses. They are continuing to abide by by law enforcement, not just from the U.S., but just law enforcement anywhere that Tether is being used. Um, and I think that Tether uh, will be very quick to change their policies if it is that other stablecoin issuers do need to. It's clear that other stablecoin issuers um, need to be sanctioning. Um, yeah, it sounds way. like they're waiting for more specific guidance. Exactly. Um, and so we might find that this you know, early sort of um, pushback on the U.S. Um, actually rolls over in the next couple of days if they do get that guidance. A um, couple other quick ones. Faye, um, the 17th largest stablecoin by market cap, is is calling it quits. They're they're closing down their, their DAO. They're going to sell. I think they said convert their ETH. Convert. I think that means sell. Um and and this comes after I think Faye and and Rari had had merged several months ago, maybe six months ago at this point. Um, and there was a there was an exploit that caused Rari uh, holders to lose eighty million dollars worth of tokens. And at the time, there was a vote um, of this of new combined DAO holders that said they wanted to compensate those folks um, who had lost money. But then that then there was another vote uh, for some reason, and and that one failed. And I guess it's been a little bit. Um, you know, controversial how to handle this. But anyway, they, according to the team, they said amid quote, mounting technical, financial and future regulatory risks, they, uh, they were shutting down um, Sam Casamanian, the founder of Frax Finance, an early uh, face supporter, Frax also a sort of decentralized stable coin, um, said it was quote, a new low for DeFi. Um, what do you what do you think, uh, guys, anything on this one? Yeah, I think that this was pretty surprising and it makes you really think about the DeFi protocol that you're using, how reliant on is it on a specific team, a specific core development team, and can is this technology something that doesn't require um, support from like a, a DAO or a vote? I think that that was, I think one of the reasons why users are so angry about this is because this impacts their ability to get reimbursed for the funds that were hacked. And I think that ultimately comes down to the Faye team and the decision that they make. Um, and in, and because of that, I think that the protocol of Faye is not something that is totally, it's not totally, uh, I guess, like a decentralized protocol that just kind of functions. Autonomously. Autonomously avoid of. Yeah like these other social issues. Um, but then again, maybe technology really 
to what extent is technology really autonomous from these social issues? I think that's also another question that um, is a little bit more broader, but yeah. You know, I think uh, this Faye issue, you know, touches on sort of uh, a, a little bit of a, of a broader point about, you know, we need people to get more and more comfortable with, with DeFi, we need people to get more comfortable with de- interacting with, you know, smart contracts and decentralized protocols. And the, the, the recent sort of headlines have just not helped in any way, shape or form. Like every week there is a new, uh, you know, exploit, you know, there, there's a bridge hack, there's some regulatory, uh, you know, concern or, or ruling, um, the yields haven't been, been high enough. Uh, like there, there, there's a lot of, you know, things that have made me a little discouraged on DeFi, um, but, you know, hopefully, you know, this is just sort of test, figuring out the, the proof of concept stuff. Um, yeah. But anyway. All right, one last one. Uh, let's keep this one short because I know this one could drag on for forever, but we've talked about the merge ad nauseum, and I know we're going to talk about it with Stefan a little bit in a moment. But um, the Gethcore client te- team announced that there was a, a, a serious bug in their um, client uh, for the merge that would cause, the, according, to, <laughs> according to the uh, lead maintainer, uh, it would fry your DB uh, if it weren't fixed. They announced that yesterday. This morning on Wednesday, they've already released a hotfix for it. So it seems like... Um, they're fixing it quickly, but I don't know, Christine, tell us what this means. Is there any risk of a delay for the merge because of this? 75% of uh, folks run go Ethereum. It's true. More than 75%. I think it's like 77%. Um, but, you know, I had, I was worried. I was concerned yesterday before the hotfix was announced this morning and released this morning about whether or not this would delay the merge. However, I am, I am now very confident that the merge isn't being delayed because of this because shortly after Geth had the Geth team had released their hotfix the Ethereum Foundation went ahead and published the official blog post confirming all of the final client releases reconfirming the the values for the merge the expected date for the merge upgrade um, so it really sounds as though you know the core developers had taken a look at this issue and didn't deem it worthy enough to to really uh, delay the merge schedule. And, and given that the Geth team had already issued a fix for it, um, you know, the, the thinking is that it's it's a bug that's been patched, no need to to delay the, the merge schedule. Great, so there's still enough time, tight timetable, but um, things are moving quickly. Um, everyone knows we'll be watching it. Um, okay, let's go to our guest, Stefan Gosselin, a co-founder of FlashBots. This is the R&D organization that is dedicated to studying maximal extractable value, MEV, um, and mitigating its negative externalities on public blockchains like Ethereum. Stefan, thank you so much for joining us and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Super excited to chat. So tell us briefly, Stefan, just what FlashBots does and what you do at FlashBots, and and then we'll kick off the conversation from there. Yeah. So um, I'm the chief architect at FlashBots, so I look mostly at um, what are sort of the the actionable steps that we can take and the products that we can build, um, the technology that we can can design um, to help mitigate uh, some of the externalities that that comes with with MEV. Um, So yeah, as you mentioned, FlashBots has a whole research and development organization. Um, We've got a team of people that uh, are doing research and looking really deeply at um, what is the impact of MEV on blockchains um, and what is sort of the theoretical risks that, um, that it has. And then a development team that's focused on uh, putting together 
uh, products, uh, tools, technologies that allow us to um, to mitigate some of these in, in the short term. Um, so one of the one of the major things that we have going on is the release of of a client um, called uh, Mev Boost, MEV Boost, which um, which is set to to be run with uh, with validators um, at the merge, and you know that's something I'm happy to to get into and chat about. Yeah, definitely. I do want to chat more about. MEV Boost, but one aspect of that MEV Boost product that I think lately has been under a lot of heat is the way that this software has been built and is going to be operated by Flashbots in such a way that it's compliant with U.S. sanctions and laws. And, you know, it, it doesn't come as a surprise because, you know, Flashbots and the products that it puts out and operates has always been like this, has always been cl compliant with U.S. sanctions and laws. Um, but I think lately because of this tornado cash and, and because of the upcoming transition to proof of stake, concerns around Ethereum's censorship resistance has, has really um, gotten a lot more in the forefront of people's mind. Um, so, Stefan, why is compliance so important and integral to the way that Flashpots builds its software and, and operates its software. Like what concerns did you have when you were founding the organization and, and going through, you know, releasing these kinds of products for Ethereum? Um, why was it so important that, that from the founding and to this day, even with MEV Boost, uh, compliance is built in? Um, yeah, so there's there's a lot to unpack here. Um, I, I will say there's a lot of misunderstandings around what is MevBoost uh, and what is sort of the role that Flashbots plays with um, with uh, with compliance as well. Um, that's that's worth looking at a little bit and, and disentangling. So one one of the the pieces I think it's lost um, is that the MevBoost software itself um, does not really have a, a notion of what OFAC is. Right, it's sort of neutral software that allows for uh, validators to outsource um, the construction of blocks um, to uh, to some third parties who can optimize and and sort of provide them additional yield. Um, so it's really designed for um, with two things in mind. One of them is to protect client diversity, right, which is sort of one of the fun, uh, foundational objectives of of the merge and of, of proof of stake as well as allow for um, solo stakers. So anyone who is running uh, a stake uh, at home and validating from, from their home um, to have access to the most uh, uh, optimized uh, blocks. Um, so that's that's really what, um, what, it, uh, what it aims to do. Um, but uh, it doesn't sort of prescribe what the sort of entities that are running it have to do with regards to um, to uh, to compliance, um, you know, as a as an organization, Flashbots is is very much so in favor of um, of censorship resistance and cares deeply about sort of the values that that it has. Uh, but the reality of um, of operating a, a business that hires people, you know, that are sort of all over the world is um, there is some necessity to to um, to protect those in individuals and avoid bringing sort of risk to them. Um, so so you know we we produce research and we we develop products. Um, we we um, we aim to uh, reinforce the um, the the values that uh, that the chain has and uh, and you know minimize any sort of risk that that we we uh, can bring to to those values. Do you think that other um 
infrastructure providers, staking providers who do, like Flashbots, employ people and and operate in this kind of uh, reality where where U.S. sanctions and laws are are um, something that's that's a very real concern. Do you think that these other infrastructure providers on Ethereum um, will take a similar stance as Flashbots by also complying and 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 censoring transactions? I don't know. I don't know the specific situations of these other operators. I think, you know, one of the principles that that Flashbots takes when designing any system is one of maximum diversity, right? So, um, you know, MEV Boost is designed to not rely on a central party to operate anything and um, allows for any party to connect sort of permissionlessly um, and start offering services on top of it. Um, and uh, and I think this is kind of the important part to 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 uh, to look at when when we analyze these types of systems, is making sure that there isn't sort of reliance or or um, a single point of failure on a, on a single entity and and sort of whatever that entity needs to do for for compliance or ideological or whatever other reasons, um, and uh, and allow for for there to be a lot of uh, diversity. Yeah, I really do want to. To, to talk a little bit more deeply about this coexistence of like compliant software and non-compliant software, because even, even Ethereum core developers, one of the reasons why they felt comfortable with moving forward with the merge um, and the release of MEV Boost is that at the merge, it's not just the compliant Flashbots relay that will be available for users to run, but also a non-compliant version that um, will reportedly be be run by a different company, Blocks Route. To what extent do you think that there's going to be, um, how do you see the competition, I guess, playing out between a compliant and a non-compliant relay? If both coexist on Ethereum and that kind of diversity exists, um, do, you th- do you have confidence that the Ethereum community is going to be um, that the majority will choose to use like the non-compliant blocks route relay. Um, tell me a little bit about how you see that competition and those dynamics between compliant and non-compliant software playing out on Ethereum. Yeah, I do think that those are sort of two of the the providers that are often referenced, but I do expect there to be many, uh, many more. Um, and it, there's not just a, a question of sort of what is OFAC compliance, but there's been all kinds of questions around censorship and MEV and, um, you know, what types of orderings and block constructions are considered okay, ethical, that like people would be happy to, to run. So um, I think it's a very deep rabbit hole and there's a lot of different uh, approaches to, to constructing these, um, uh, these, uh, these blocks. I, my, my hope is that, um, you know, it's a lot of the lack of clarity that there is around what compliance means over time, you know, becomes uh, clearer. Um, and as a community sort of, uh, uh, and as an industry, we sort of start to converge into um, into a common understanding. Um, but it will it will take time and there, there'll be a lot of, um, of different interpretations, I, I suspect, and, and different uh, sets of values until then. That's fair. At its core, do you think that if hypothetically we do the merge and the centralized staking providers um, and the, and we notice that the majority of active validators are censoring transactions in some way, um, either by connecting to the Flashbots relay or um, 
you know, as a as a regulated entity such as Coinbase, um, if we notice that censorship of transactions is happening um, by the majority of, of active validators, do you think that this uh, discredits or or undermines a core value proposition of Ethereum? I've heard um, differing arguments for this because there is an argument to be made that, well, even if the majority of active validators are censoring transactions, you know, your transaction can still be included just probably a little bit later than others. Um, and there is already censorship happening on, you know, more app front facing levels of the Ethereum blockchain. So I'm curious to know your take, Stefan, on um, when when do you think censorship resistance is is being is being uh, undermined, and is it is it when the majority of, of active validators choose to censor, or or is it a higher bar than that? Does it have to be like a hundred percent? I think it's a philosophical question, right? Some people will say as, as soon as there's a single entity validator miner who does censorship, it's sort of a slippery slope. Others will say, well, as long as you can eventually get a transaction included, it's not you know censorship. Um, I, 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 there's, yeah, there's so many different interpretations, I guess, of, of what, what censorship really means here. I don't particularly feel like censorship is going to be threatened, um, on Ethereum. I, I do think that there is very strong resolve in the community, um, and these sort of values to, uh, protect censorship resistance as, as a, a core property, um, of the system. Um, and, um, I mean, you alluded to this, I think in one of your, your previous comments, like technology and technological systems are social systems. Um, and, and so long as, um, the, uh, the social groups that, uh, that believe in it and, and sort of want to use it, um, believe in certain sets of, um, of values and rules, um, there's, um, there's a path towards sort of making it happen. So, um, you know, it's there's a lot of speculation that can happen around. Okay, well, who are the actors? Who are the validators? Where are they located? How are they going to interpret things? Um, and uh, the reality is, we don't know until until we see what what takes place and and we see how the the community reacts to it. How practical do you think that this this conversation around uh, social slashing as like the last resort for Ethereum? Um, core developers to take if if there is a, a social consensus and like you said this this technology is very much not agnostic towards um this the community of ethereum um have you thought a little bit more deeply on on social on thinking through social slashing and and whether that's um you know really the the solution of last resort that uh ethereum core developers should depend on um if it comes to um, censorship resistance on Ethereum being being um, at jeopardy? I don't think it's the ideal tool. I mean, for sure it is like one deterrence um, uh, mechanism. I think it's it's it becomes a social fallback, right, of uh, how, how do you maintain the properties of the system that, that you're looking for. Um, ideally, if you, know, you want to design a system that doesn't allow for validators to do any sort of censorship, you design that into the technical rules of, of the system, right? And, and um, you, you create the, the, a system where you know, validators don't necessarily see the contents of, um, of the blocks that they're producing or, or something like this, 
right? Um, so, so I think it's up to um, it's up to the, um, the the community to figure out like what what do they care about, what kinds of systems do they want to design and, and use, um, and uh, how do they want to deal with yeah this this um, this ongoing issue that um, that the uh, validators have and, and these tough decisions that validators have to make. I have to admit that when I heard about the the social slashing as a as a last resort for dealing with with censorship resistance and preserving censorship resistance, um, I definitely got into the mindset of what if social slashing and the circumstances in which social slashing can be implemented um, were different? What if it wasn't as clear cut when we use social slashing? And if the community then, and if it really, if that meant that the tool would be less powerful. I think if there was like a consensus created around you know, this is when validators get slashed. Um, I think there's a certain amount of consensus around the protocol level. It already automatically slashes validators under certain certain circumstances. But I think like that that confusion, I guess, around well, which what when can you just you know um, take take over the protocol and then apply your own rules to it. Um, so I, I also want to talk with you, Stefan, a little bit more about MEV Boost and the competition that we see with, with um, MEV playing out after the merge. Um, but first, could you give our listeners a little bit of an overview of the skills that are necessary to compete as a searcher versus a block builder versus a relay? Because um, I think one of the, one of the core changes that's going to happen pre-merge post-merge is that you have the introduction of a new player in the MEV game in the MEV supply chain and that is the block builder and they're not necessarily optimized to be searchers or like optimized to be validators to be relayers uh, but they have like a core they I think they have like certain competitive advantages that perhaps um, not many people know about so um, if you could give an overview of of those core skills and competencies for these three groups, that would be great. Yeah. So um, I published a post called the um, the MEV supply chain, and it sort of tries to identify and um, and describe what each of these roles uh, does. Um, and, and when you think of a supply chain, you really think of it as also a value chain. What is sort of the value that each actor in this this chain um, is adding um, or contributing? Um, so, so you have the the user who has some intent. They want to um, execute some kind of state transition. Maybe it is like a trade on Uniswap, right? Um, and so they use a um, a wallet or they use a, a DAP like Uniswap to express this intent into a, a transaction request. Um, and then this transaction request gets routed typically over the transaction pool over um, to the other uh, parties of the supply chain. Um, uh, searchers can see this uh, this transaction request and they can see that it exposes some amount of value. Um, so this could be by creating an op- arbitrage opportunity or perhaps the, the request um, is not well-priced and actually has exposes slippage. Um, and so the, the searcher can identify this, um, this value and propose uh, transactions around this transaction. Um, that uh, that extract the value, that capture the value uh, for themselves. Typically, what this has, you know, what has happened then is through a system like um, like Flashbots, it's been routed directly to miners, 
And then miners run this algorithm that inserts those bundles and those transactions into blocks. With MEV Boost, we're sort of taking away um, that part of the system from the job that the miner or the validator has to do. So they no longer need to run this algorithm that tries to take all of these diverse different bundles and transactions and, and put them into an optimized block. And we're moving this over to, um, to what we call the block builder. Right. So this block builder becomes specialized in aggregating all of these different searcher strategies um, and, and transactions and ordering them in such a way that it produces uh, a block that uh, the validators are looking for. Um, then finally, yeah, the validator uh, uh, selects whichever construction that they prefer and they, they propose it to the network. So the separation of, of job, right, which was um, more um, historically you know, done by a miner of constructing a block and proposing it um, and, and uh, separating it into two different roles is what we call PBS. So proposer builder separation. Um, and it's one of the items on the, on the Ethereum roadmap where by, um, by separating out this role of, of constructing a block from the role of the validator, you can minimize or reduce the amount of um, sort of hardware complexity that the validator has to do thereby allowing sort of smaller um, uh, entities or even solo validators at home to run on much simpler machines. Um, and you know, all of this, of course, is with the goal of maximizing the amount of decentralization that there is at the validator level. Um, so the simpler the, the node that the validators can run is, um, uh, the more you know, different nodes you can have all over the world. So I want to dig a little bit deeper into PBS, and I'm really glad that you mentioned it because one of the jobs of the relayer in that supply chain in getting the block to the validator is that the relayer ensures that everyone's being honest, that you know the, the rules of the MEV game are not being violated, and that if you say that you're going to be proposing a block and giving this amount of cut of, of the rewards, that that is actually like the follow through. Um, why? Tell me a little bit about the challenges of being able to support that from the protocol level, because MEV Boost is going to be launched at the merge um, in such a way where you have to rely on centralized relayers, relayers that may or may not be taking advantage of their responsibility as a relayer. Um, and so I'd love to hear more about what areas of research are still um, not production ready um, and, and what parts of, of PBS are still really hard to, to be able to do from, from Ethereum? Yeah, so PBS um, itself, and, and in particular, we should refer to it as enshrined PBS, is sort of uh, putting this separation within the, um, the protocol itself, within the consensus of, of Ethereum. Um, and this is mostly at this stage still at the research stage, because as far as we understand, it requires some fundamental changes to the fork choice rule, uh, amongst sort of other, other things. Um, what MEV Boost does is it takes the same abstraction, right, the same separation, and enables it to happen as soon as, um, as proof of stake is enabled. Um, so, so we accelerate the timeline of introducing the separation by introducing this, uh, this relayer, this trusted relayer um, in, into the mix. Um, right, as you mentioned, the relayer is sort of tasked with receiving blocks from builders and forwarding those over to validators. Um, and they are sort of trusted to, um, to, to operate uh, this uh, successfully. 
What's really important to note, though, is they are only trusted within sort of a one block or a single block timeline. Um, and so anyone in the network, after the relayer has made a block proposal, can audit uh, what the behavior of the relayer was and identify if it misbehaved in any way. Um, and so this is this is crucial because you want to be able to say, okay, well, this realer behaved in a way that that wasn't in line with my expectations as a validator. Therefore, I will disconnect from them and I will connect to some other relayer um, that continues to operate um, in the way that I expect. How ready are like the monitoring tools for detecting the behavior of relays? I remember that one of the concerns was that validators, um, there was no way for a validator to communicate to other validators in the network that, hey, this relayer is is giving is not giving blocks or this relayer is acting in a malicious way and that that could potentially disrupt network aliveness. Um, what 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 uh, mitigations and what uh, tools do you think will be ready at merge uh, to really uh, be able to to detect, I guess, the, the behavior of relayers? Yeah, so liveness um, is is sort of the biggest um, uh, potential fault, right? Like one of the core properties of blockchains is you want it to be able to continue producing blocks. Um, and if this is no longer the case, then the blockchain is not particularly useful. Um, and so mitigating any faults where where there's a liveness issue becomes crucial. Um, we have a we have a post about this and and sort of you know what is the impact of MEV boost on liveness that describes. Um, both, you know, what, what are the potential risks as well as what are the mitigations that are implemented? Um, practically, what it is, is um, as a validator, you're running a consensus client that's able to monitor the status of the chain and be able to tell if uh, it is successfully producing blocks. Um, and, and the mitigation for liveness is if, you know, a, a client notices that the chain is no longer successfully producing blocks over a certain period of time, it can just disconnect from any sort of outside services like MEV Boost um, and fall back to the local block production that um, that uh, that doesn't carry any of this um, this risk. Um, so that's really the the main and most important uh, uh, mitigation to um, to the behavior of of relayers. Um, you know there are there are other things that you want to be able to keep track of with relayers, like making sure that they are um, they are paying what they sort of. Uh, promise to pay um, to you as a, as a validator, but those are uh, sort of less critical for the uh, the correct functioning of the chain and are more sort of a, a relationship between the um, the the relayer and the validators uh, to make sure that uh, they're they're not getting cheated. Um, uh, those uh, there's some tooling that's being developed, uh, but isn't necessarily completed to be able to to really help uh, validators with this level of of monitoring. That's really interesting. And it sounds like from what we're talking about and this infrastructure being built around relayers and how much research there still needs to be done for enshrined PBS, I guess the the vision of, of not having to trust in relayers and just the role of relayers becoming completely trustless, that's still several years out. Is that true? Correct, yeah. Enshrined PBS uh, is several years out. And are there... Are there, I guess, because of that, are there, um, is there a likelihood, I guess, of, of some of the people who want to be the most profitable, um, who want to earn as much MEV as possible? Um, do you envision um, certain users 
running both a relay and a block builder. I know that that's one of the strategies that Flashbots is going to be doing. They'll be running both a block builder and a relay. What kind of synergies are there in fulfilling multiple multiple pieces of the supply chain? Are there? Do you think that there's going to be quite a lot of searcher, searchers that are also block builders? Um, or is like the technical capabilities of fulfilling each function so different um, that really, you know, it, it just makes sense to specialize in one? So the, the goal with a supply chain is you want it to be as modular as possible and as competitive as possible. Um, and it's really interesting, right, looking at uh, uh, sort of anti-competitive uh, practices and antitrust theory, along with the study of, of this market, um, you really want to, if you want to maximize decentralization and you want to uh, uh, maximize the amount of diversity and, and redundancy in the system, it also means that you want to maximize competition. And maximizing competition means avoiding things like vertical integration across the, uh, the supply chain and making sure that each um, sort of value add activity uh, becomes as specialized as possible with uh, as little interest in, in vertically integrating. Um, so Flashbots operates uh, uh, a, a builder and a relay, but really mostly for the purposes of uh, helping bootstrap uh, the network and helping bootstrap these, um, these abstractions. Um, the goal is not to, um, to sort of become a dominant uh, builder or a dominant relay, but really to help uh, create uh, a template that others can use. Um, so we've uh, we've recently open sourced right uh, the relay um, that that we've developed uh, to try to encourage others to uh, to, to take it and um, and expand on it. I'm really quite fascinated to see how the competition between block builders are gonna, is going to play out and who's going to be the best block builders out there. Um, I'm under the impression that you know, simulating blocks and simulating which blocks are the most profitable in terms of MEV and then priority fees is something that only, you know, companies that have large uh, servers and I guess data houses will be able to do. Um, who do you think, Stefan, is going to be the best at block building? It's, yeah, this is the question I get asked all the time. It's it's funny, you know, being a, an architect like this that like creates a software that creates a new role and then not really having a good opinion on how it will play out. Um, you know, what I think will happen is there will be like a handful at first, then there will be many. And then over time, as like many markets do, you'll start to see who the winners are and, and you know, it'll be there'll be fewer. Um, but what are the types of strategies that they engage in? Um, what are the, um, you know, the points where they specialize in? Um, that, that all remains to be seen. And I think will be sort of one of the most interesting uh, uh, stories to, to follow um, over the coming years um, on Ethereum. You know, one of the, the pieces that I'm the most excited about with uh, with block building is the new features that it allows uh, to create um, on top of um, of Ethereum. So, you know, a few um, a few user experience features that have been discussed for a really long time are those of account abstraction, for example, which is or the ability to um, to pay for transactions uh, inclusion uh, using any token, or even originate transactions from accounts that don't have any um, any uh, ether um, in them. Um, and those, you know, when you start to incor incorporate those into applications, 
sort of expand the, the realm of what you can build as an Ethereum application. All of a sudden, you can uh, you can allow users who have never touched crypto before to start interacting uh, with with the blockchain, with crypto applications, uh, without necessarily even uh, owning any any crypto assets. Um, and so this is you know this is the the, the features that I think block building will be able to develop. Um, and I'm the most excited to, to see uh, take place. Wow. So j just to confirm, like block building, not only for the purposes of earning MEV, but block building for the purposes of increasing usability and user features on Ethereum. Yes, that's that's the main uh, value add, in my opinion. Interesting. And does this does the introduction of block building also change how Flashbots Protect is going to work? Your colleague, one of your colleagues at Flashbots had posted today that, you know, since the introduction of this MEV protection product that you guys had had launched this year, um, you know, 5 million transactions on Ethereum were protected from MEV. It's protected over 280,000 addresses. Um, are there any caveats that users should be aware of when um, ca caveats should be they should be aware of when relying on these technologies for MEV protection? and for the improvement of, I guess, privacy when it comes to, to user user DeFi trades? Yes. So, you know, what what using a system like Flashbox Protect does, it's, it's communicating directly, um, you know, before the merge, uh, it was communicating directly with miners and sending transactions directly to miners. Um, after the merge, it's uh, sending transactions directly to, to block builders uh, for inclusion. And so you sort of sidestep uh, the the transaction pool where you can have searchers that uh, that target and and try to um, uh, to use or extract some some value from from your transactions. Um, th there's obviously considerations to be done with this, which is you're now all of a sudden routing your transactions to cent cent single centralized servers as opposed to uh, routing it to a, a peer to peer network. Um, and so when it comes to thinking about censorship resistance. Right, the server uh, is likely to implement some kind of policies according to whatever the, they, they believe in on on what they are able to um, to forward. Um, ideally, in, in the future, we develop technologies that have more privacy uh, involved, and so the entire uh, chain of uh, sending this transaction from end to end will remain private, where um, even a block builder doesn't really know what is you know the content of the transactions that are being sent. And I think that's like really good for um, uh, for uh, financial privacy as as a as a feature for for Ethereum as as a whole. Um, it, it would be a really valuable technology. The other item to think about with um, with Protect, and I think that becomes very relevant um, and and is going to be talked about more and more, is the idea of order flow um, and who's sort of capturing uh, uh, order flow. Um, I think it's uh, another big risk in this supply chain that people uh, sort of try to um, uh, to centralize by by capturing as much order flow as they can, um, and so uh, we were you know excited to support and develop uh, products that help uh, um, avoid uh, order flow capture and, and maintain decentralization there as well. I think I've been seeing a lot of this kind of conversation and development around increasing the privacy of user transactions, especially on the layer two with ZK rollups. Um, and a lot of conversation around even just scalability on Ethereum is that one day in the future, most transaction activity will will migrate to the layer two. Um, and with the advent of further 
technological innovation in, in ZKs uh, will have a lot more privacy when it comes to transaction activity. Um, what kind of dynamics are you already seeing um, when it comes to MEV on the layer two? And is there a need for a similar structure, a similar MEV supply chain, which we have now on, on Ethereum or we will have post-merge, um, on you know a, a roll-up like Arbitrum or Optimism um, on a, a layer two like, like StarkNet? Yeah, so layer twos um, don't escape the the MEV problem. I think from from an MEV perspective, layer twos are um, are just like any other chain. Um, so they have certain actors that are in charge of aggregating transactions and including them into blocks um, and sort of proposing them to to the network. Um, one way to think about layer twos that I think is is quite useful is um, a sequencer really is a a block builder. Already, um, and they sort of uh, play the role that block builders will play uh, in an enshrined PBS world. Uh, they play that role for for layer twos uh, uh, already from the start. And so they, they define some rules on what ordering that they want to use, and they define some uh, some some restrictions on the types of transactions that they're going to to provide um, and and include. Um, and so, you know, that's quite exciting because it also allows for a lot of experimentation on different models of doing block building, um, introducing features like uh, like privacy that, that you discussed um, in ways that, you know, could be more difficult to introduce at the base layer um, when you have more diversity of, of block builders. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting. I mean, I, I, I hear you that actually already parts of this MEV supply chain are are happening on the layer two, like a sequencer, which does order those transactions, which does produce blocks on the layer two is behaving like a block builder would um, on the on the Ethereum level. And so extrapolating everything that we're learning and experimenting with through MEV boost will, I'm sure, be very helpful for um, the way that MEV uh, starts to become more prevalent on these layer twos as transaction activity starts to increase on these layer twos. Yeah, and you know this this might um, this might be interesting to you because of the technical side of it, and uh, it, it's getting a bit deep into layer two design. But a lot of layer twos are, are converging on sort of EVM equivalents and starting to reuse um, uh, the core clients um, that Ethereum is using. Um, and the other challenge that layer twos are trying to solve is is sequencer decentralization. Right, so they want to figure out a way to um, to provide uh, many different sequ uh, sequencers and not just a single uh, uh, sequencer. Um, so you're starting to see how there's a potential for software like uh, MEV Boost to be deployed on uh, on these layer two systems in a way that's very similar uh, to how it's uh, being deployed on on Ethereum. One last question about the design around MEV. <laughs> You're also under the impression that similar to how most MEV profits accrue to miners at the end of the day today uh, versus searchers, that most of the MEV profits will still accrue to validators. Um, less, probably the, the smallest part of the MEV pie goes to searchers and then maybe a little bit more to block builders, but most still accrues to, to validators. Is that also your understanding, the way that this structure is designed or is it not 
to is it to be to be determined? I think it's to be determined. I think if we maintain the properties of permissionless access to these markets and the transparency of it, then it becomes true that a lot of the value gets competed down to uh, to being returned to the validators. I wouldn't necessarily say that that's ideal. I think a lot of the MEV that's produced and attributable to an end user should actually be sort of retained by that end user. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done at the application level and at the wallet level to prevent users from accidentally exposing more MEV than they really intended to. Um, so hopefully a lot of the value actually gets retained by, by, by users in, in that way. Um, uh, and the rest of the value does uh, sort of aggregate and, and, and go towards, um, towards validators. Um, you know, part of our, our research, we also look at um, what is going to be the impact of, of MEV on validator rewards after the merge. Um, and those don't necessarily always show up in, in the analysis of, of what the staking yields are going to be. Um, and so our, our estimates is, um, is uh, if, you know, MEV continues around the same, um, the same uh, trend that it has over the course of 2021 and, and early 2022, that staking yields uh, could be anywhere between 5 to 7% at the, sort of the current amount of, of validators out there. Um, so, so we do see, you know, for any MEV that's exposed, all of it should accrue to uh, validators as efficiently as possible. But really the goal is to help users expose as little MEV um, as humanly possible um, uh, to actually get what they want to uh, get done on top of the blockchain. Stefan, thank you so much. This has been a phenomenal conversation. Really appreciate your insights on MEV. But before we go, I did want to step back briefly and ask you for your thoughts on MEV sort of more philosophically, my understanding is that Flashbot's sort of goal um, is mitigating what you call the MEV problem. Is MEV something that is inherent to public blockchains? Is it going to be around forever? And sort of what went into your thinking as a you know, founder of Flashbots um, to sort of, you know, what's the reasoning behind making this software widely available and, and, and to help mitigate this supposed problem? Yes. Um, so the philosophy of MEV is something that I don't even feel I'm competent to talk about because, you know, I hear these conversations amongst our research team um, and I only understand very small portions of it. But I think there are some heuristics that are that are useful to think about, which is in any sort of decentralized public system, there's always going to be sort of asymmetric information between parties. And a lot of MEV sort of ends up arising through this, this asymmetric asymmetry. Um, there's also this sort of property that we've observed with MEV, which we, we, we like to call the, the law of conservation of MEV, which is every time you try to remove it from one piece of your of your blockchain, it sort of crops up and has externalities on another piece of your, your blockchain. Um, so in many ways, I do think that MEV is a fundamental problem that, uh, that blockchains have to contend with, um, and not one that there is a perfect solution to yet. Um, so every single blockchain, whether it's a layer one, a layer two, a layer three, layer four, if we get there at some point, I will have to, to grapple with these questions of, of, you know, what is the impact of MEV on their system and, and what properties do they want to protect? And, and so how does Flashbots help uh, mitigate that? What's the sort of broad strategy uh, in, in like equaling the playing field? So um, our, our approach so far has been to focus um, on providing more transparency 
um, to what happens with uh, MEV. So making sure that the sort of supply chains and the marketplaces that that uh, where MEV operates are transparent. Um, the other one is uh, making sure that they're permissionless or, or you know, as we say, dem- democratic, um, so that it's freely accessible um, and uh, and there isn't sort of a, a gatekeeping uh, as to who's able to participate uh, in this uh, this these markets. Um, and the final one is is one of of redistribution. I think is one that's you know really the the real tricky problem, which is where should the value. Uh, of MEV uh, sort of accrued to, um, who who does it sort of belong to, um, and what does a, a healthy outcome for these uh, these system look like with with regards to MEV, um, and uh, and you know what we do is we help figure out and think about these these problem, contend with them, uh, look at uh, uh, protocol designs, um, and uh, and uh, make predictions on how certain designs will impact uh, these uh, these properties. Stefan Goslin from Flashbots, thank you so much for joining us. An excellent conversation. We really enjoyed it. I know our listeners will as well. Um, thanks to Christine Kim from Galaxy Research. By the way, check out Christine's report on MEV if you need more background on what we were talking about today. It's available at mev.report. You can also read our research at galaxy.com research. Thank you also, Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Digital Trading, our friend talking about markets. Um, This was another episode of Galaxy Brains, and everyone have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, a weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. If you enjoyed the show, please like, rate, review, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about the work we do at Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email. Read our content online at galaxy.com slash research and follow us on Twitter at GLXY Research. That's all for today. See you next time.